This end of October, I wanted to honor my absolute favorite holiday by doing a Halloween episode. For those who don't know, I'm rather obsessed with Halloween and all things spooky year-round pretty much, not just in October. However, it is nice to have a time where I can just let that freak flag fly high and proud and not stand out so much. Even though I grew up in Saudi Arabia, the compound for foreigners I grew up in celebrated Halloween, and in a pretty big way too. We had a couple of houses that even went all out with motorized decorations and everything. I mean, Halloween decorations are pretty rare in Saudi as it is, so I was pretty fortunate to have access to Halloween culture at all. One of my happiest childhood memories is my mom throwing a kick-ass Halloween party for my school friends. She put in a lot of effort, too. She dressed up as a witch and came in holding skinned grapes and boiled spaghetti, eyeballs and veins, of course, all to the delighted shrieks of a bunch of 10-year-old kids. Anyway, I wanted to have this discussion simply to explore some of the questions in my mind. Now, I know there are no black and white answers to a lot of things, but just having a conversation helps. Does the cultural appropriation outrage have merit? Is the outrage over offensive costumes proportionate? And is the outrage to the outrage to such things proportionate? Throughout my teens and early 20s, especially in uni, I dressed... uh, pretty hardcore goth and I remember getting extremely annoyed when everyone on my floor would come to my dorm room to ask if they could borrow a dog collar or corset for their Halloween costume. This is how I dress every day for fuck's sake. These are my clothes. They're not a Halloween costume, I think to myself. So, I mean, I can understand when people are annoyed by others treating their everyday clothes or national outfit as a costume. Annoyance and eye rolls I totally get. The outraged shit show that results from these things is definitely way too much, though. College professors have had their careers impacted by such stuff, so that's definitely not cool. And I do think that learning how to be offended is an important part of becoming an adult. Coming from the Muslim world, believe me, I've seen and heard too many awful instances of what happens when people cannot handle offense. However, I don't approve of the other anti-PC extreme either, where everything is done with the intent of pissing people off and shitting on their cultures, nationalities, shitting on religions I can get behind, harmful aspects of cultures too. But harmless parts of cultures like clothing and food and accessories, no. So when Milo Yiannopoulos wants to go across campuses wearing a native headdress, he's an asshole. And I really just think it's a mirror image of the absurdity he's mocking on the left. He's got nothing of value to add. And worse, he often tends to dehumanize people. However, when you give him the -the over-the-top, infuriated reaction he wants... You're doing nothing but helping him strengthen his brand and increase his popularity. There's no need to fuel him like that. If we could just learn to disagree and learn to be offended maturely, Milo would be out of business. Also, there are degrees to the offensiveness of costumes that are lost in this blind outrage. Blackface and Nazi outfits are obviously way worse than a sombrero, in my opinion. And when we group everything together 
as blanketly, unbearably offensive, then we really lose out on important distinctions in people's intent and varying degrees of awfulness. This trend towards forbidding certain costumes is an authoritarian one. We've got to let people make mistakes and learn from them. This is how we move forward. And this, of course, doesn't apply to the obvious. No, I don't think a KKK costume is appropriate anywhere. But we've succeeded in making it socially unacceptable enough that it often doesn't come up. I'm just not sure that Aladdin matches up in offensiveness. So let's employ nuance and critical thinking when it comes to these things. Sometimes the outrage is coming from a justifiable place, but it's just taken too far. Proportionality is key in all things. In opposing stifling political correctness, too. Never go the alt-right route. With all that said, here's the episode. Make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects. And uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, (laughs) ever controversial or impolite. Yeah, yeah, okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, never been banned from Facebook or YouTube, never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion, ex-Muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to the Polite Conversations Halloween Special. Episode 16 is about to happen with my favorite religious leader returning to the show. Lucian Greaves from the Satanic Temple is here. Hi, Lucian. Hello. And, I mean, who better to discuss Halloween and spooky things with, eh? Like, I couldn't think of a better guest for today's show. I don't know. I probably could, but I I deal with me all the time. (laughs) Okay, so... Let's begin with the most frightening topic I have on my list. I read this scholarly paper. Well, I didn't read the entire paper, to be honest. I read some articles about it. And it's called The Perilous Whiteness of Pumpkins. Did you hear about this? No. Please tell me all about it. (laughs) So uh, this is how the paper begins. It's like peer-reviewed, proper, scholarly paper. And it starts off saying... This article examines the symbolic whiteness associated with pumpkins in the contemporary U.S. Starbucks pumpkin spice latte, a widely circulated essay in McSweeney's on decorative gourd season, pumpkins in aspirational lifestyle magazines, and the reality television show Pumpkin Chunkin (laughs) provide entry points into the whiteness pumpkin connections. Such analysis illuminates how class, gender, place, and especially race are employed in the popular media and marketing of food and flavor. It suggests a complicated interplay among food, leisure, labor, nostalgia, and race. I I failed to see the connection between pumpkin spice and the pumpkin chunkin'. (laughs) Is this supposed to be a commentary on, uh, on pumpkin spice permeating everything and conspicuous consumption and... It's talking about the whiteness pumpkin, whiteness pumpkin connections, about how all these things are indicative of white privilege. Now, I mean, I <laughs> have a bunch of decorative gourds in my house right now, and I can assure you that I am not white. 
I mean, I enjoy pumpkins and pumpkin-flavored stuff mildly. I don't know what's so white about it. They also talked about how they're creating these white pumpkins. Um, They're genetically modifying them or whatever, and they look really cool. Like, I've been seeing them around. I was just admiring them the other day, and and there's supposed to be some connection with that, too, like how that's kind of racist. I don't know. I don't know where this stuff... I think it is possible to appreciate pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns without marginalizing somebody else. Right? I mean, maybe Donald Trump, but... He might feel Donald offended. Trump is orange, ironically. Right. Exactly. So that's why he might be offended by it. But. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. Not exactly sure. But you know this this whole uh, thing about peer review. It isn't all it's supposed to be. There, there's has to be a million journals by now, and sometimes peer review means nothing more than uh, people in a similar field read it and agreed with it. Right. I mean, and then sometimes stuff like this is blown out of proportion, too, right? Where it's like one obscure person saying that the study of glaciers is misogynistic. I don't know. I remember reading that somewhere. Um, And then it becomes like this right wing propaganda anti left tool as well that the left has lost its mind and they think everything is sexist and everything is racist. Therefore, nothing is sexist and nothing is racist. And caring about that just means you're a cuck. Right. Well, that's. That's the danger of of going too far and becoming a satire of yourself. Then you become indicative of the entire of the entire dialogue to those who want to dismiss the dialogue. Right, and I see that we're we're kind of experiencing that in a big way, uh, especially in the I guess online atheist community. There's a lot of these anti PC, anti regressive left voices that are becoming so popular, but they're really just a mirror image of what they oppose. Right, their feelings are so easily hurt if you talk about white men, or they want to tread softly, but with different types of people so they want to tread softly with racists or sexists have you noticed that around yeah and it's a real difficult thing to talk about because it's the the middle ground seems so difficult for people to maintain and i'm not one for the middle ground just for the middle ground's sake but when uh you have dueling sides of the of the spectrum that are equally insane after a certain point uh the conversation is it gets very depressing to try to engage in the in the conversation with any honesty at all. And of course, we we view that on the question of Islam and, and of, of various other things in politics. Now, it's just it's very depressing. But I do see how how it feeds itself. Um, people who feel very alienated by a group that wrongly witch hunts them, accuses them of, of, of holding views that they don't, whether they're being called racist or misogynist for a, a, uh, a semantic faux pas mm-hmm. or, or anything else, um, then feel embraced by the other side of the argument that isn't exactly reasonable, but at least treated them politely only for being pilloried by their enemy. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that happen before. I was at a conference where um, where the the guy who filmed the Missouri University protest, Mark Shearbecker, he was talking about how he was filming this safe space and an administrator from the school came and assaulted him. And he was talking about uh, 
the First Amendment and journalist freedom and how he was actually on the side on most of the issues of the protesters. Uh, it was a Black Lives Matter protest, but they had set up a, what they called a safe space in a public area. And uh, he was trying to explain that this was a, a public area and that, you know, he should film. And that uh, it, it really doesn't help protesters or activists to, to demand that the cameras be off at any given time. That's actually quite a, quite a backwards way of thinking. Mm-hmm. In, in any case, um, there were people complaining that there wasn't a person of color on the stage to counter, counterbalance his points as though any person of color would do, as though there's a monolithic voice right. for people of color, and that they would all, you know, you could pick anyone out of the crowd, and they, they would have the, the, the valid counterpoint to what he was saying, even though It's he almost was dehumanizing in a way, right? Like, to people of color to assume that you just pick anyone, and yeah, they'll do. Yeah, right. Yeah, sometimes I think this kind of coddling attitude is more one of, of those who have really had no interaction with people of color and they do have this this very bizarre notion that it is a monolithic voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, we have uh, to deal with that, like with the Islam topic all the time, right? Where, especially as ex-Muslims, people are always trying to tell me like um, how to think about my own culture. And well-meaning people, they think that I shouldn't criticize things that I grew up with when they're free to do the same for their culture, you know? And they just don't realize how offensive that is. Like, no, 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 hijabs are totally empowering and beautiful and feminist and diverse, and you should accept that. Like, it's just part of the culture. It's so exotic. And um, like, no, they're actually used to keep women down. Well, I have no love for the, the Catholic culture, but I do see that double standard where you, in the United States, you are free to criticize the Catholics as, as you will, as you should be. Mm-hmm. But if, if but yes, if, if somebody who, who grew up in the Muslim culture is to insult or criticize the, uh, the practices of Muslim culture, then, then that's a different story. You know, you, you can make jokes at will about uh, child rape within Catholic, Catholic culture, but it seems like if it were some kind of outside group, uh, something that was less prevalent in the United States, that would then be considered uh, some kind of attack upon a culture. And, and you can't criticize the, the Catholics for uh, raping children because that's that's part of the part of the culture yeah, there. That's, that's what it boils down to. And it, and it's so harmful because, I mean, I speak to a, f- a couple of people and one on this uh, podcast, too, where she went to the authorities. She was being abused at home, but her school sent her back thinking that, oh, well, you know, she's being beaten or whatever. Like, it's just part of their culture. Like, we can't get involved in this. And I, I mean, children suffer because of it. So it's just a terrible attitude to have. But on the other it's hand, terrible attitude. But it is oddly, it's it's oddly infantilizing and, and racist in its own right. Of I course, feel, because people call these practices when they legitimize them as as being some kind of uh, cultural heritage, and the criticism against them is considered racist. It almost seems as though you're saying, well, you can't expect anything more from these people. Exactly. This is kind of. This is a, a genetic defect of theirs or something like this is 
This is a racial proclivity of theirs to act this way, to to behave in this manner. To treat women lesser or whatever, yeah. Right, right. We we can't expect anything different, so we need to, to, to work with them in this way. And that's the irony of, like, feminists defending misogynistic Islamic practices and turning on dissenters from Muslim cultures who want to call them out. They'll host these slut walks and be anti-slut shaming when it comes to Western culture. But if we try to talk about slut shaming within our culture, which is pretty extreme, we're silenced time and time again. I've been bumped off of radio panels once they've heard my views. So, I mean, it just kind of sucks how that works out. Yeah. yeah. Well, in Shearbecker's case, uh, the the conference I was at, there there were a uh, preponderance of people willing to willing to completely pillory him and, and, and dub him a racist merely for having had the audacity to stand up on the stage and speak about his experience about being attacked by a white administrator at his school for filming in this safe space, um, defying this this safe space idea where, where media wasn't allowed even on the outskirts of their encampment. And that just seemed so very wrong to me. One could argue that he was right or he was wrong in his assessment of, of whether he had the right to uh, film. Legal- yeah. Yeah, legalistically he did, but they, they could question the, the ethics of that. But I, I didn't see that what he had done was was a commentary on how he felt on, on race at all. And this was exactly what he was trying to explain. Right. But, you know, he was obviously very deeply disturbed by this. Uh, filmed a video where he was trying to explain where he was coming from. And he was invited up on stage to, to talk about this. And he was crying. And then later on, I could see that uh, he was more and more embraced by the right wing. And uh, did he welcome that? I think I think he did for a time. Well, I know he did for a time. I I think it's kind of he's kind of leveled off and and come back to to reason now. But uh, but that's how you can see that kind of thing happen. You can see, you know, it really doesn't help. It really doesn't help your cause to go on a, on an internal witch hunt, and I think that's what you find when people start trying to find the meaning behind the meaning. When they start looking at pumpkins and trying to look <laughs> for the uh, the the uh, racist statement therein, I think when right, you, like when imagine you, if I wanted to carve like white um, jack o' lanterns. What, like, should I be concerned about what, what my neighbors will think? Like, will they think I'm a brown white supremacist or so? I don't know. I shouldn't worry about that stuff. Yeah, I think most, most real people don't, don't think of those kinds of things at all. It takes a certain brand of academic and the humanities to, to come up with these types of things. Yeah, for I, sure. I don't, think that, I don't think that idea about pumpkins and white privilege has much staying power in any case. No, probably about as much as glaciers and misogyny. <laughs> right. Or uh, skyscrapers and misogyny. There's that whole idea that there's these phallic structures. But what these, uh, what, what these theories fail to do is present an alternative. Uh, it, it makes a bit of rational sense that we would build upward. Um, I right. don't know how we could make more vaginal structures. <laughs> Well, there was this um, stadium or something that was said to look like a vagina, and when people pointed that out, then then they were called sexist or something. 
I mean, it's endless how many ways this can go, and you're really just a sexist or a racist if someone just doesn't agree with you, right? Well, this this isn't the only... Uh, these aren't the only topics where this is true. When you start from your conclusion and are looking for the evidence to support it and discarding that which might disprove it, and and it's really a non-falsifiable claim, you, you really are just a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's equal parts to these crazy left-wing conspiracies and crazy right-wing conspiracies where, on the one hand, I mean, I, ho- I hope they're both fringes, um, but there's, like, the all-heterosexual sexist rape kind of people, and then there's the Mike Cernovich, uh, so I can feel sound waves, and date rape isn't real, and poor white men are being oppressed everywhere. Um, between that, it's so hard. It, even just even on the Islam topic, it's like the left will silence you, but then the right will embrace you only to try and get you out of this country or out of the West, you know? So it's like you don't really know where to go and how far you should go saying something like, I'll criticize something about my own culture. And then all these crazy Trump lovers will step in and pat me on the back. And I'm like, no, not you. You just want me out anyway. So Yeah, but it. Sometimes it's difficult when people are saying, you're right, I agree with what you say, to turn on them and say, well, I don't agree with what where you're coming from. But that that's and that's part of the degenerative spiral. I think that's how people end up embracing some of sometimes the extremes just because they felt so alienated by the other side. Absolutely. And then and that's how it happens on both sides. Right. So people who are feeling alienated by the Western right somehow sometimes find it in them to justify the Islamic religious right and side with them. Uh, like kind of make excuses for why people have turned to extremism and how it's Western racism that's caused us, Western imperialism has caused us and lay no responsibility on the actual jihadists. But then on the right, when they feel alienated by the left, they think that Western racism is caused by, I guess, Islamic extremism or the left's denial. And people are blaming the existence of Trump on the left, which... I find really shady. I find this whole Trump phenomenon very interesting. I, I think this is really the ad absurdum we need. To, <laughs> we need to show us that uh, some people just will not be shaken in their uh, in their loyalty to a party, regardless of who the candidate is. And it's it's amazing to me to see that the uh, the party of the evangelicals. Right. The Christian right, the family values people are this unshakable in their adherence to the cause that they will embrace the, the grabber by the pussy. Candidate. Right, the, the serial adulterer, the, you know, everything wrong, non-Christian person. I, I think I remember seeing a part where he was like uh, trying to talk about his favorite verse of the Bible and he sounded really unsure. He had to think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, mis- he misnamed it. I, I can't even remember which passage he was trying to... Probably everybody listening will will know off the top of their heads. But but that was actually one reason why I wanted him to win the primary. I was far more afraid of Ted Cruz. I thought there was, uh, you know, Trump to me kind of uh, beckons the end of the GOP as we know it um, in my kind of idealistic uh, 
interpretation of this. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, Ted Cruz and some of these other fellows are genuine theocrats. Yeah. Well, Trump really has no no genuine ties to this type of thing. But in this last debate, he really did scare me because he was talking nothing short of the overturn of Roe v. Wade and yeah, and various other things that are, that are 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 very disturbing. Right, and Pence is no no sweetheart either. Oh, Pence is terrible. Pence uh, Pence is a real shithead, and and I've known this well before he was the VP candidate. He is genuinely a scary individual, but in. Before people think, well, the, the media actually did a good job with, with Trump because uh, they've been openly critical of him. But we shouldn't forget that it was because of their uh, hyper coverage of him and, and his entertainment value mm-hmm, that he mm-hmm. won the prime to begin with. But it was really disappointing for me to see after the vice presidential debate to hear this commentary about how how poised and presidential Pence was. And Pence is really going to be the rising star in the GOP Never mind the fact that there wasn't a word of truth coming from his mouth and the insane things he's he's done in Indiana, such as uh, trying to pass a law for women to pay for the funerals of their of, of yeah. their and, and other just insane things like that. Um, even Chris Matthews was gushing that he, he was so poised and presidential that, that he was the guy to look out for in the next uh, next election. I guess if they're not raging lunatics at that moment, it seems like a good thing because of Donald Trump, maybe, because well, he's right. shown his crazy I, I up front. gone on, the, on, on an all-out assault against the, the media personalities he should have been ingratiating himself to. They would have treated him as a as a legitimate candidate. So yeah. I don't think we're any better off now than we were <laughs> than we were when this started. Yeah. <laughs> um, but back to Halloween. So offensive costumes. Now, I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about this in a very black and white sort of way. Either it's there's nothing offensive about any costumes ever. Or everything's offensive and you can't do anything ever. So just like a lot of other things on the internet, it's very hard to get like a nuanced opinion on this. Now, I mean, I grew up in the 90s so and in Saudi Arabia. So Halloween was, I mean, actually, surprisingly, we did celebrate Halloween where I lived in Saudi Arabia. It was like a little compound for foreigners. So I'm not Saudi by ethnicity. I'm Pakistani. So I guess we somehow lived in this compound with a bunch of Westerners, Americans, Germans, British, um, Canadians. So I guess it was very North American lifestyle. And uh, Halloween was big in my compound. It was the 90s. I mean, everyone probably did the offensive. Uh, there was a lot of like natives and tribal people or there's a lot of like a lot of Pakistani and Indian parents would just be like, hey, put on the outfit like you wore for your cousin's wedding so we don't have to get you a costume and be an Indian princess. Right. So, I mean, you just can't do that stuff now because people will freak out if you patronize cultures right but we all did it like i don't know i think with any of these things i i think we've lost sense of uh of trying to gauge somebody's intentions yeah definitely there's no proportionality when uh if a if a little girl's favorite disney film is pocahontas and she Mm -hmm. wants to dress like pocahontas i 
hardly think that's a, a racist statement. And right. I don't really, it, <laughs> it should be presented as, as such to her. If somebody's dressing in blackface, you might want to ask them what their, what their yeah, intentions are. Absolutely. Your assumptions might, might reasonably be a little different. But this idea of cultural appropriation really distresses me. I, I don't see how I think it was Steven Pinker who tweeted and said that culture is appropriation in in that intermixing of, of cultures and that kind of co-opting of cultures, I think has always been a very positive thing. But some of these concepts of cultural appropriation are very backwards. Uh, dreadlocks certainly are. Yeah, did you see that a, video of that kid being stopped in the university hallway and being yelled at by some girl for, you know, appropriating her culture and having dreadlocks and he can't do that because he's white. And then if I remember correctly, I think he he told her that there were other cultures that have also had dreadlocks in the past. So which is true. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> in, in very white ones at that. Right. Uh, the. the Vikings, right? The Scottish Highlanders. Uh, so it doesn't make sense. But even if that were true, I would think that kind of non-segregationist hairstyle <laughs> attitude is is a bit better. I, I, I think of this kind of scenario in which imagine you have uh, two little girls around six years old, white and black, and you have the black girl braiding the white girl's hair into cornrows. Would it really actually be appropriate to go up to them and, and tell them, no, you have to realize you two are distinctly different and separate and you're not allowed to share hairstyles amongst one. How is that productive? It's terrible. It's like, it's, Absolutely. It's new segregationism and it's it's a completely backward way of thinking. I'm not sure who that's supposed to defend, what, what that's supposed to protect or how that's supposed to help a, a more... Uh, a more balanced attitude. Towards well, I actually came across someone on Twitter who was like an anti-racism activist who was speaking about how she did not approve of interracial relationships. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's really shocking at this stage how they're not um, even slightly self-aware that they sound like white supremacists when they say that and that white supremacists would be so on board with their terrible ideas. What was the justification for this idea that, that the races shouldn't mix? Well, she was like, okay, different races that are not white can mix and date or whatever, but white, nobody should date, like people of color shouldn't date white people, I guess, just because, I don't know, she must think they're awful, or I don't know. I don't know what the wow. justification... Yeah, it was very racist. Yeah, well, that's that's what you find at the extreme ends. You, you find so many commonalities. Yeah. You find the, the conspiracist right and the conspiracist left, and sometimes you forget who's who. Who are the 9-11 truthers and who are the birthers? You know, they're... they're there are distinct different ends of the, the political spectrum, but the thinking seems ge yeah. generally the same. I was in a, a Halloween party store the other day looking for a costume, and there were there were some really tasteless costumes that made me cringe, but I certainly wasn't going to go seek out counseling or, um, you know, I think that's the appropriate response is you cringe and that's really all you can do. You have to let people make their own choices. Like I have a friend, a really good friend who loves to wear 
really, really awful Halloween costumes. I don't know why, but he thinks it's funny. Nothing like blackface or Hitler or anything like that, but he grew up in Saudi Arabia, so he makes a lot of tasteless Arab jokes um, in his costumes. And I guess technically he's he, it's better if 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 anyone must do it that someone who grew up there can do it i guess but it's still really cringeworthy but he's not saudi and he's east asian so when you look at him he looks east asian and like he's mocking arabs but you don't know his history with the culture and um it just looks really bad it looks really taste tasteless well, if you're, if you're not in drag or wearing something satanic, I'm offended. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I... I yeah, that's what Halloween is about. Do you, do you go in drag sometimes on Halloween? No, but always satanic. Okay, well, that's good. At least there's that. You should do, like, drag satanic someday. Uh, it, it needs to be something homicidal, something uh, something demonic. Something horrific. <laughs> I mean, I've done like like really offensive nun outfits before, I guess. Um, so I've done really offensive outfits as well, and uh, I'm not ashamed of that. My nun outfits were great, but I think that they would piss a lot of people off. I had a friend who did a pope pope wearing a dildo, I don't a strap on. Um, <laughs> Stuff like that, I think, is great. Of course, depends on who you are and what your political and religious views are. But imagine doing like a Muhammad costume. You'd probably be killed. People need a day like that, though. You'd be surprised at how uh, earlier Christmas celebrations were a lot like that, where you, it was an overturning of the norms and, and people would dress in drag or, or, or make a mockery of... Uh, figures of authority, burn effigies, that type of thing. Uh, the dominant culture tried to completely co-opt these things, and, and that eventually happened with Christmas. Halloween is still contentious, you know, even though it's been diluted to this form where it's, uh, it's of course, rather commercialized and, and parents take their children out and collect candy. But it's still far too, far too de demonic for some of the real zealots yeah yeah for sure and uh, uh i think my parents neighbors were really really christian and they had grown up in canada their whole life they saw us one time like we're at my parents house and we're carving pumpkins and uh they're like i've never seen that being done before and i'm like really yeah no my parents won't allow you know my parents won't allow us to celebrate halloween it just made me really sad that someone's grown up here in North America their whole life and they've never seen anyone carve a pumpkin or celebrated Halloween. And imagine how excluded you must feel as a child. Like I have a religious relative also that does not allow her kids to celebrate birthdays even or, or Halloween. And it just... Well, this, could, this could backfire. I'm, I'm, it, it's a curious thing to consider now because for decades you've had extreme Christian groups declaring Halloween satanic and therefore trying to drive it out of the schools and, and trying to uh, to withhold people from having any celebration of Halloween. Well, we're a religious organization, self-identifies as Satanist. I feel we should have the right to have our our holiday as it is and, and have it <laughs> recognized as a religious holiday. I'd be so on board with that because then we get to take the day off, right? 
Yeah, but what's also interesting is that since I've been doing what I've been doing with the Satanic Temple, and it's been as high profile as it has been, Halloween's been less of a question every year. People seem less interested in in the, the Satanic Halloween celebration. Is there interested in Christmas? Because that really seems to be where the culture war is at. Because there's and, a war on Christmas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and but there also, there's, there's also this motivation to kind of Satanize Christmas and bring Christmas back to these traditional roots and, and bring Krampus back to Christmas. Right. And bring Lord of Misrule back to Christmas and bring that inversion that day-long inversion of values in this discarding of the usual social norms back to Christmas again. Now, when you say inversion of values, what like what do you mean? Like you're a good person generally, from what I can tell. So do you invert that? <laughs> like what, what do you mean? Oh no, no. It, 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 the earlier Christmas celebrations kind of inverted the uh, the Christian the values paradigm. No, it was a day in which the the poor were really allowed in the houses of the rich. Okay, okay, okay. So like that. It was that kind of trick-or-treat mentality. It was Mm -hmm. a day, you know, when earlier on uh, Halloween was a day in which the the children could confront their parents in ways they hadn't before or their their elders, and they were given that kind of latitude. Just that kind of lessening of restriction, that that loosening of boundaries for a day where you kind of have... uh, have increased latitude in the name of fun and enjoyment, of course. Right. No, no, that sounds great. Going back to the costume thing. So the University of Florida issued like a statement on their website where they talked about choosing Halloween costumes to their to their college kids, you know, and it sounds like they're talking to really little children that don't understand the decisions that they'll be making will impact them, like the pictures that they'll post on social media. I guess it's important to remind kids that, yeah, if you're going to dress up in a really awful, tasteless costume and post it on social media, your future employers could find it. So perhaps that's a lesson that that they might need to learn. But they went on and they were like, um, you know, we encourage you to think about your choices of costumes and themes. Some Halloween costumes reinforce stereotypes of particular races, genders, cultures, or religion. Regardless of intent, these costumes can perpetuate negative stereotypes, causing harm and offense to groups of people. And then they said, if you are troubled by an incident that does occur, please know that there are many resources available. Please take advantage of the seven-day-a-week presence of the You Matter We Care program program at the University of Florida by emailing, blah, blah, blah. And there's also a 24-7 counselor in the Counseling and Wellness Center available to speak by phone at, and they gave the phone number. So like they're offering counseling to people that are offended by Halloween costumes. I mean, that's really taking it far, I think. It's really coddling the students. Yeah, I I would think a lot of what would be said there goes without saying that certain costumes can be offensive and other people can be offended. But uh, I I don't know if I would I would uh, recommend counseling. Like, <laughs> right. You, I mean, would I, you not point out to somebody that their costume looks stupid? I think you should be able to point out to somebody that their costume looks stupid and um, they shouldn't need counseling after that or you shouldn't need counseling 
by seeing something that's bothered you. I think there's a real backward thinking from this uh, counseling culture, from counselors themselves, licensed mental health professionals, on what really is good mental health practice. And this is kind of interesting because this goes back to the satanic panic and and harkens back to some of the concepts related to Satanism and Halloween and everything else. But uh, in the recovered memory movement, which helped motivate the satanic panic, mm-hmm. where people digging for repressed memories of abuse, uh, insisting that certain certain uh, neuroses or, or psychological malaise of any type were indicative of past abuse that was so traumatic that it, it couldn't be remembered. It couldn't be recalled because it was that painful. So they would go through these efforts to dig for dig forward those memories uh, through hypnosis or whatever else. And of course, what we find is that uh, people under these conditions would confabulate what they they were convinced by their therapist was supposed to be there. Um, yeah. and they, so they would come up with these narratives of, you know, if it weren't alien abduction or past lives, it was satanic ritual abuse or, or other equally implausible stories. But uh, this idea also that you need to recognize a trauma, even if you don't see it as traumatic at the time, and then kind of cultivate this trauma, recognize it, uh, cry it out or, or whatever. And that also goes to this idea that you need to let out your anger or, or recognize your sadness and cry. And this idea that if you do so, You've you've taken that away. That you've had this kind of ab reaction, and that goes away. It turns out to not be true. You're really kind of cultivating then that mentality, and, and you're not doing anything to lessen it. You're actually increasing that feeling, that feeling of victimization, that feeling of trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's that the research supports this idea that this isn't beneficial. That this is actually rather crippling and backward and that it has the the opposite effect of what it's intended to do. And I think that's, pro, that's really the horrific part of universities putting out messages that say that you may be traumatized by this. Then you're rather implanting the idea that you, you should be, mm-hmm. or, or, or maybe you're just uncaring about these topics. You know, if you see something like this, that you must recognize that this is traumatic to you, and that you probably need to speak to a counselor as well, then you're actually developing a mindset in an environment yeah. where it legitimizes that reaction to these types of things. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you said, there are, are situations where things are patently offensive and, and you sh- they should be called out on that. But is the proper reaction to that also to relegate yourself to a victim status and go to a a counselor, or is it to confront somebody and ask them, what, what were you thinking? You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the this supposed to mean, you know, or ha- have that kind of, have that kind of dialogue. But no, I, I think that this, that kind of therapeutic setting that's been cultivated now from since, uh, for some time and, and hasn't been revised despite the empirical evidence is, is very disturbing and, and indicative again of, of just the, uh, lack of responsibility we've seen from organizations like the American Psychiatric Association and other groups that are almost wholly political by this point and completely 
uh, operating in ignorance of where the, the current research leads us. Well, also the danger is that it um, fuels this this anti-PC crowd to, to the extreme kind of people where they're actually coming out and saying that people of color have lesser IQs just because of their skin color isn't racist and nothing is racist anymore, you know, and extreme misogyny, like making excuses for actual rape, like people who will say that marriage is implied consent and so you cannot have marital rape. These are the people that are being empowered from that other extreme, right? When you claim everything is racist, like pumpkin spice lattes and white pumpkins, then you're muddying the water to such a great degree where if someone actually sensible will come out and say, well, no, this guy who is saying that black people have lower IQs and this guy who's saying that you cannot rape a woman that's married to you are actually a misogynist and a racist, then then they're hard to recognize as such because then they'll throw back at the person, oh, well, you're just one of those leftists who thinks everything is racist and everything is misogynist. So it's become so crazy that it's hard to even see real racism for some people anymore. What's really distressing is how many people don't seem to recognize that there are gradations on the spectrum and that you don't necessarily fall neatly into on one side or the other. Right. So I find if I make a comment on one topic, somebody will make a, a whole series of assumptions of what I believe about other topics based on that. And I see that even recently, we went and visited the Westboro Baptist Church because I happen to have a lecture in Kansas City. And nice. Yeah, and and we we showed up at the Westboro Baptist Church and and brought uh, brought a DJ with. Oh us yeah, you guys stuff. had a dance party. I did remember seeing that something like that, right? You guys were dancing, right? Or? Right. And there there were a couple of comments on my Facebook fan page expressing a criticism that I would never do such a thing outside of a uh, outside of a mosque. And and the real problem right now is <laughs> is Islam. And I, I just couldn't understand that thinking. I asked, I asked these commenters to tell me where exactly they believed the Westboro Baptist Islamic equivalent what were in the United States. And, and I, I get that kind of question all the time as well. What are we doing to combat radical Islam? And I, I tell these people, well, Islam in the United States, you know, we really don't have theocratic Islam trying to impose itself in in American schools. Oh, or well, see now you've just upset US the government. you've upset the Pamela Gellers and Robert Spencers of the world because they think it's a Sharia takeover, like for real. Fox. Yes, they've made that, they've made that up. <laughs> yeah, and of course it, they've it, made that up. <laughs> and, and, but if it were happening, you would see the the Satanic Temple questioning that as well. But you just don't see that happening, and I, I, and we really don't, in reality, see a problem of radical Islam trying to take over American politics. In in this idea that I uh, that we must, because we we go on the attack against what's admittedly an easy target like the Westboro Baptist Church, that we're sympathetic to radical Islam. <laughs> Don't you know you can't you can't think two things at the same time? Like so if you're attacking Westboro Baptist Church, you clearly think that Islam is wonderful. Right? I mean yeah, these are the it is it's it's distressing to see how, how prevalent those notions are. It's 
on a lesser level, you'll see you'll see that when you make any comment against one of the one of the presidential candidates. If you say anything about either presidential candidate, the next thing you'll get is is a whole you love the other one. commentary. Yeah, about uh, about the faults of the other one. Yeah, and, and that really disturbs me because that carries on past the election, and it really it really sets up uh, an environment in which the candidate or the elected official can do no wrong because there's always something worse that has already been done by a candidate yes. of the other party. Therefore, therefore, it's anything goes. Well, and nothing is yeah. going to be worse than ISIS anytime soon. I mean, so that is like the greatest gift to, uh, I guess, extremists of all other kinds, right? Because you can't criticize anything else because ISIS is going to be worse. Well, Westboro aren't beheading, you know, and I get this all the time too. And I get called like a stealth jihadist or a stealth Islamist because I've dared to criticize Christianity one day out of like 45 days of me focusing on Islam. But one day I'm like, well, you know, Christians can be assholes too. And well, you clearly are so tribal and so attached to your former religion that you're probably working for them so i guess you you must run into the embrace of of christianity or you're or or you're with the or you're with isis yep that's basically it (laughs) it's just frustrating oh it's very frustrating because then you're called like a regressive leftist which you clearly aren't you know and i'm sure you like people that hear this some assholes are going to think that you are too because why does the satanic temple fight Christianity and Christians? Well, you do a lot of legal battles, I think, right? And in America, it just so happens that you're fighting a lot of Christian theocrats that are trying to impose laws based on their religion. Yeah, this is something I pointed out on some of the social media when we've gotten this criticism. The uh, satanic temple doesn't have a fucking army. We're not going over to the <laughs> Middle East and, and, and fighting any of these battles. We're not going into the mountains of Pakistan. We, we're fighting We're fighting legal battles. So when a religious group is fighting for exclusive privilege, you know, fighting against extremist terrorist groups really isn't our jurisdiction. That's not our that's not within our purview. In fact, I'm getting a little a little uh, scared over how like Google is kind of taking on that fight against against ISIS and and I I don't know that that's really within their their business model their their business are you aware of this No what oh, what uh, there yeah there was a an article in Wired that was talking about how Google has this approach to try to convert uh ISIS recruits and they're trying to find the common structure and the and the kind of search history that people who might gravitate towards ISIS have, and they're manufacturing the search results to kind of dissuade them, which sounds all fine and good when you're talking about ISIS, because as you said, ISIS is the is the, is a gift to some because it it sets the uh, it's bar so the low. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but right. you know you can't judge people on their on their internet searches because I mean just me I write about extremism extremists and leaving Islam so I search a lot of this stuff and then I, I mean. Are, are people going to think that I'm an extremist Islamist from my internet search? So that, that kind of does scare me because 
Well, it, it, it scares me because uh, Google's working with outside parties, and I don't. I I find it hard to believe that their attempts to model opinion ends with trying to dissuade ISIS. Yeah, I I don't know if they should. Be. I mean, like. I can see why everybody should want to try to do something if they have the power to, but sometimes I mean sometimes it doesn't go right, right? Like Facebook uh, with its stupid real name policy, I guess that was meant to dissuade people from harassing other people online. But no, also- that was meant to to build a more focused <laughs> and accurate marketing. Profile. Yeah, that's right. Actually, that's so true. But I mean, what it does is it really shits on people in vulnerable positions and pe- people who have to be anonymous because they're victims of abuse or because they've left a religion that will get them killed, like myself. So, um, yeah, Facebook is awful. Oh, yeah, I, I hate Facebook. Yeah. And something I probably mentioned before, but it, it it's worth repeating, is that... Uh, despite whatever community standards Facebook claims to have and and how hypervigilant they are over whether a nipple is posted in a picture or not, there hasn't been one fucking death threat we've gotten that Facebook has agreed to to violate their terms of service. Yeah. Well, it's not a nipple. There's been outright death threats that have come in that I've reported to Facebook and I've gotten the immediate response that this does not violate their, their community standards. Yeah. And they even have a category for religious hate speech and that people will post things about uh, killing the Satanists, burning the Satanists, whatever, whatever makes them happy. And you report that and somehow that doesn't, that doesn't fit within that framework. So either you have community standards or you don't, or you're trying to uphold some kind of standards or you're just a tool. And if Facebook could just present itself as just a tool and not uh, not a community with standards, this would be more understandable. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a really good documentary about Facebook called Facebookistan. So I guess like how they maintain their, how, how they really exploit people from developing countries and how they hire them and they are paid based on how many of these reported messages that they can go through per hour. So they're literally just skimming and they gave stats in that documentary of how, how few seconds they have to go through each picture and each comment. So that's why so many just slip by except for the really obvious ones like nipples or I mean they've taken down my artwork which wasn't even naked so and they said they took it down for nudity so I don't know what's going on there but clearly it's a very faulty system and they don't seem to give a shit and they don't well, make it obviously easy obviously they don't have the money to employ more people to to kind of increase the scrutiny on, on claims uh, yeah because they're such a poor <laughs> Poor corporation, they have no money. No, no, they're pretty rich. I think they can. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, but you're right. I think they do have uh, remarkably few employees for the amount of revenue they, they yeah. generate. Oh, I'm not exactly sure what those numbers are. That might be inaccurate. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd recommend anyone listening, and if you get a chance to watch that documentary, it's up on, on YouTube too. From what I, I'll try to include a link on. The, on the show notes. But yeah, so so tell me this. Uh, I came across an article a couple of years ago about a school in Canada that wanted to stop calling calling Halloween Halloween because it was offensive to some parents. And so they wanted to call it 
Orange and Black Day. And oh, I thought you were going to say they're going to try to make it All Saints Day, just an All Saints Day celebration. No, because the, the church had pulled this one before, where they they wanted uh, Halloween to be co-opted into some day where you pick your favorite saint and pray all day or something <laughs> that was certain to not catch on because it's there's no fun involved in it in the least. No, yeah, that would be like a terrible version of Halloween. So, so orange, orange and black day, day. and my what immediate same celebration. When wouldn't that just mean that later on, orange and black day would be considered an offensive? <laughs> Maybe you're you're right. Um, yeah, I think you're. Yeah, I thought I thought Canada was better about these kinds of things. I would have expected that from, mm-hmm. know, say, Arkansas. Yeah, Canada is generally better, but we do have the occasional weird thing creep in sometimes. I mean, we do have a blasphemy law on the books. It lies dormant, but it's still there. And, and what's what's the uh, what's the gist of it? That uh, word or deed against the most holy is is criminal and something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I actually uh, there was actually a warrant issued for my arrest in Mississippi. Recently. No, no, back when we did what we called the Pink Mass. Oh, right. Where, yeah, where we had uh, a protest against Westboro Baptist Church uh, following the Boston Marathon bombing when they came to... And you protest. had these homoerotic rituals over the grave of... Right, and uh, there was there was no material damage done. The cemetery was open to the public at the time. So there was no... there was There was nothing really really done or, or, or said that could, uh, that you would think could be construed as a crime in actuality. Um, but they, they issued a warrant. Uh, it, well, this is what I, what I'm told. I, I've never seen a copy of this. This was something that, uh, the sheriff at the time said to the media, but that they had, uh, issued a warrant for desecration of a grave. And that was so subjective as to be essentially an anti-blasphemy law where mm-hmm. in, by word or deed you somehow insult this this grave area. So I, I assume that using vulgar words within the proximity of the grave and in no set proximity, you know, it's not within 20 feet or, or anything like that. At least I don't, I don't think that was the case. But you also pull, pulled out your, your balls, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I rested them on the grave, but very respectfully. But very, and, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, in, in a very tasteful manner, and it, <laughs> with nothing short of reverence. So, really, it was the interpretation of whoever signed off on this. <laughs> so it was just an act of worship on your part, right? Yeah. It was bizarre, though, because I would think that with that latitude of interpretation, you could call what the Westboro Baptist Church does desecration or right because don't they go to military funerals and stuff and chant that god hates them and that they should have died yeah yeah and it's all because of gays somehow (laughs) oh gosh yeah but that yeah but they don't get shut down yeah well i was i originally thought well it might be worth just fighting this charge going back to mississippi and you know, make a mockery of that kind of little legal proceeding. So long as the worst that could happen was a 
was a fee, you know. But I consulted my lawyer before attempting to go back, especially after having insulted the sheriff's department in in press. You know, I wanted to make sure that there was no chance they could detain me. Yeah. Lawyer advised against it because he said, no, they could and probably would throw you in the in the can for up to a year. What? Yeah. (gasps) So you can't go back there. Yeah. That brings me to a, another story kind of off the, the topic, but I was at, uh, I was in Arkansas uh, last week at a subcommittee hearing about our Baphomet monument to be placed next to the Ten Commandments monument. And I was explaining to the subcommittee on monuments the legitimacy of our claim and how I feel that Baphomet is the best chance for the Ten Commandments to be allowed to stay because if they put up a Ten Commandments monument, it's, it's certainly a, a violation of the of the Establishment Clause. And if they can't uh, demonstrate that viewpoint neutrality, that the Ten Commandments will come down at taxpayer expense. Right. But what happened was a documentary crew was there filming me do this subcommittee hearing because they're doing a documentary about the Satanic Temple and things we're doing. Mm-hmm. And instead of wearing the microphone, uh, the cameraman decided to put the microphone under the podium so he could get any of the speakers that would come up. Uh, There was a lawyer for the Ten Commandments monument speaking before I did. So the microphone was just kind of uh, taped under the podium. And it was one of those transmitting ones, you know, the little box that you wear if you Mm -hmm. you do television interviews or whatever. And so after the subcommittee hearing, they forgot to collect the microphone. So it stayed under the podium from Arkansas in this, in this building noticed it later on and assumed that we had bugged them. uh, Yes. Part of the satanic conspiracy, I guess, but the director of the documentary or the production team or whatever else, they, they took ownership of it and said that, no, we left this and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not, we just forgot it is all. But I guess Arkansas launched a criminal investigation. The production company has gotten a uh, a defense attorney and hasn't hasn't seen reason exactly yet. I just feel it's it's an amusing little side story and all this. Oh, the <laughs> trouble people get in, like just associating with you, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> who knows if they're trying to find a pretext to either deny our our claim to put up the Baphomet or or deny future filming or, or whatever else. But, yeah. uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. The panic we cause. So just hanging out with you makes people get into trouble. Good to know. Um, <laughs> don't get my podcast banned again, please. It's already been banned off of YouTube twice. A third time would be unnecessary. What banned off of YouTube? Yeah. For, I don't know, for violating community standards when there was nothing, nothing more offensive said than what was said here today, perhaps. And uh, I think people watch my content sometimes and then they mass report it and then they get it taken down because other people who put it up, um, to put my content up on their channels, it stayed there just fine. Oh, yeah. I think you must be victim of a concerted effort in... For fuck's sakes, have you ever seen comments on YouTube? Yeah. YouTube has this bizarre, there's something, there's something remarkable about YouTube in which you can look at any random video and manage to find 
some racist comments, <laughs> some of the most ignorant. And, and they'll be apropos of absolutely nothing uh, within the video at all. I was explaining this to somebody, how I, I've seen these these remarkable comments on YouTube that seem unique to YouTube over most any other <laughs> venue. Uh, or, you know, you can see comments on articles and not see things of a similar nature. But in YouTube, it's it's there, there's something different. And Very I definitely uploaded is. a video one time. Uh, for the satanic temple and one of the first comments to pop up after I had had this dialogue with somebody is, are you a, and it had, are you a what? Sorry, you cut off a, a faggot. Oh, wow, oh dear. And, and it, what was, what was interesting about this comment is it wasn't even clear who it was directed to, you know, is, is who a faggot? I wondered <laughs> and, and what was the relevance to any of this at all? <laughs> But that that's really seems the norm on YouTube. There, it seems like there's just armies of people combing through YouTube looking for something that was uploaded to give some <laughs> kind of non sequitur comment that is. Uh, well, have you seen some of the like most popular YouTube atheists? They're horrible. What is it about YouTube that brings horrible people together and gives them such a large platform? And I say this. As someone who has a YouTube channel, so, you know, I get it, hashtag not all YouTubers or whatever, but there's a lot of really, really disgusting YouTube atheists whom I won't oh, name because yeah. well, I don't want to get doxxed. YouTube everything. I That's see people true. <laughs> I mean, there's Islamists out there, yeah, there's hate preachers of all sorts, so, yeah, YouTube brings, a, YouTube brings out the... But I, I, I'll see these videos, these video channels where it's just some slob sitting in his living room pontificating about world events. And then I'll look and see that there's like some hundred thousand views. Yeah, yeah. This massive following. And I don't know how that happens. Yeah, yeah I am in the same boat because I am blown away by like the student is wife beater saying nothing of importance and having really stupid opinions and then you see he's got like you know a hundred thousand youtube subscribers and i'm like what how does that happen um, i know i i feel like i've i've done so i'll start feeling good that i've done something right that uh the media has been managed very well the after school satan club video has over a quarter million views and, th and then i see things like that and i think well or recently, uh, there is a story. I have my my Google alert set, so I get stories related to the Satanic Temple and Satanism. And there was this massive amount. Well, I wouldn't say massive amount because you probably haven't heard of it. But once you have your alert set and you, you have these things coming in, there was a significant amount of press around a story related to a UFO researcher who was allegedly killed by Satanists. And he's one of the stupidest, most irresponsible <laughs> conspiracist stories. But all these UK sources covered it. The the Mirror, the, the Daily, Daily Mail. Mail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All that crap. And then it just made me think, well, 
made me feel less of <laughs> it made me feel less accomplished in in bringing attention to the issues we have by by managing to get them into the press and in creating a dialogue about it. Well, just know that the stupider shit always appeals to more like more minds, right? You can definitely see that in the Satanic Temple because we do some very serious campaigns. Right, your under, stuff is definitely highbrow right. and intellectual, and not everyone's gonna get it or yeah, have the patience for it. A lot of people don't realize that because sometimes the things that are that get the most coverage are just the, the things that are most easily summarized. They're not necessarily. Well, Kim Kardashian's uh, ass for one, right? I mean, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, I meant even within the satanic temple, it, it's, uh, it, it's easy to summarize in a headline, the Baphomet campaign. You mean Kim Kardashian's ass is not part of the satanic temple? I am not at liberty to disclose whether it is. <laughs> well, I was speaking to a journalist from Pacific Standard yesterday, and he was hoping for kind of maybe a tongue-in-cheek comment related to uh, the idea of satanic ritual abuse or or related to Halloween or or something like that. And and he was thinking, you know, that there's far more evidence that the uh, that Christian mainstream organizations have been abusive mm. to children than than any imaginary Satanist group. And before I talked to him, I, I led him to our grayfaction.org website to let him know how much we've been trying to do to rectify the continued purveyance of satanic panic through licensed mental health therapists and how we're fighting the oversight boards to uh, investigate some of the conspiracists within the mental health profession and, and these kinds of serious efforts we're doing. And he had no idea that we were involved in these types of things. Mm -hmm. You know, he had this idea, uh, just looking from the outside, that there's just this kind of pranksterish political theater. He didn't know that we were involved in this uh, in these protect children campaigns, right. where we drawn up exemption forms from corporal punishment for kids. And you know, and a lot of people still, I think, don't know that we have these lawsuits in Missouri uh, fighting for reproductive rights. Yeah. And that obviously these are very uh, cost prohibitive uh, legal yeah. battles and that these are are very kind of well thought out and have none of that humor value that people might be looking for yeah. in something that would be more more prankster-ish. That is unfortunate, I think. That's that's part of the whole clickbait culture that that's uh that has, I mean, it, admittedly, it's it's helped us get certain attention to issues, but it's also uh, had its downside in, in that it's diminished our some of the the most thoughtful campaigns we've executed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, have you seen these uh, Alex Jones and this this British guy that works for his website, um, Paul Joseph Watson? I think he also perpetuates the satanic panic stuff in a whole different way where he thinks that um, the music industry has ties to the to satanic rituals and the Illuminati and 
Mickey Mouse ears are a sign of how the Illuminati control the music. And it's like really absurd shit. And then you see these prominent atheists entertaining this guy as if he's a legitimate voice and hosting them on his show, on their shows. And it's just really depressing that just because someone hates Islam, people are willing to team up with these really awful characters. I don't know if you've heard of him, but you should you should check him out. Jill Stein seems uh, at ease with with embracing to a certain degree the 9/11 truther movement, mm-hmm. which I find distressing as well. This guy's also a 9/11 truther, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Alex Jones has no credibility at all. And and anybody who doesn't think that Alex Jones is a stupid asshole is probably a stupid asshole. I really really have no no tolerance for Alex Jones or or his following or or any of that. See, it's so Um, refreshing to hear that because some of the um, atheist circles that I've been around online are really starting to find... Uh, if not Alex Jones, his his buddy Paul Joseph Watson, at least very credible and worth interviewing and worth giving more um, credibility to, which I just think is wrong. Before I let you go, I have some audience questions for you. Uh oh. Yeah, someone someone wanted me to ask you what what do you wear under those robes? I don't actually, I've never actually seen you wear robes, so I'm not sure how relevant that question is, but. Yeah, I don't wear robes. So typically I wear clothes. Okay. So. But if I were wearing robes, I don't know, maybe I'd be compelled to wear nothing under them, but I'm not, not sure. Depends <laughs> on the weather, I guess. It does depend on the weather. Always wise and sensible you are. At Natalia's dad asks, where did this sexy costume thing come from and should they cut that shit out well there again it's like it's like judging the intent of a person speaking i guess you have to to judge the uh <laughs> the efficacy of the uh of the sexy costume on the, <laughs> well, what on about the like website? a sexy poop emoji because i saw that recently <laughs> sexy corn sexy on the cob poop emoji yeah oh wow Sexy corn on the cob. I've seen a sexy I don't know. It's, hamburger. It's like I said, if it's not, if you're not in drag or or dressed satanically, I'm offended. Well, some would call you transphobic for that, right? You know, and if and if I'm offended, I'm going to run to a counselor. <laughs> As you should, of course. <laughs> um, okay, Joel R. Dodd asks: Describe what a satanic temple taxpayer subsidized enormous religious theme park in Kentucky might look like. Well, it wouldn't look like it. You know, we've we rejected uh, tax exempt status from the beginning because we we reject that notion that religious organizations right. should have their own unique type of tax exemption. So yeah, no, I, I think that is an outrage, and it uh, at least uh, at least there was good news uh, from American atheists. They they filed a lawsuit against, I I forget which state, but a state was subsidizing a big Baptist convention to the tune of some 65 grand, I think it was. But they they reversed that when American atheists filed suit or or threatened to file suit. So that was a victory. But uh, 
I am encouraged that people realize what a terrible thing it is that tax subsidies went to the Creation Museum. Yeah, and I think a lot of people realize that, Just n- not even just atheists, like a lot of people across the spectrum of different religions that, are, that believe in evolution, I guess, are offended by that. Yeah. And it's funny because Ken Ham kind of tweets obsessively trying to show that there are crowds there. What is the deal with that? Like, he's always like, oh, look, there's a cra- there was a massive crowd here today. Oh, people are bringing their friends and families. Crowds in the cafeteria. Okay, Ken, we get it. You're insecure. Yeah, well, not only insecure, I think this kind of goes to the notion that uh, that seems prevalent in this crowd and, and within theocratic politician circles that consensus can make something true. That... Uh, I think they, they really have no idea what constitutes facts or evidence, and they really feel that reality is built by consensus. So if you if you have people in general agreement that the United States was founded on Christian precepts and that they were uh, fundamental to the formation of, of constitutional law, that, uh, I mean, revising that history absolutely does have an effect on how we we carry out things in the current day or or move forward with things. But I also feel that on the Ken Ham level, there's this misunderstanding of what science is. There's this kind of uh, strange notion of what reality is and this idea. Yeah, that's... It's funny because he refers to evolution as a a myth, like... As a fairy tale or something, so ironic. Right, right. right. He, he's kind of he kind of sees the arguments against his own arguments, and tries to co-opt them. He doesn't. He certainly doesn't try to learn from them. He doesn't know what empirical evidence is. He obviously doesn't really understand the scientific method, or or can't see past his own self-imposed delusions to to comprehend these things. And I think all that you're left with then is is this consensus. If you can get enough people to agree with it, you've made it true, or or you mm-hmm. then have some kind of license to Im- impose the outcome of that belief onto the the world. Yeah. All right. So atheist Iran asks, how does Lucian Greaves feel about being referred to as a real worshiper of Satan by Muslim conspiracy theorists? Ooh, I, I haven't. Uh... I would I would like citation on that one if there's been if there's been commentary about me from Muslim conspiracy theorists I would I would love to see it I assume uh, this person is speaking to some actual commentary that's been made but I think people would be uh, amazed to to know how how often I don't look at commentary about me and how often I don't look at emails I even receive from the general public I do have people who. I share email accounts with who do look at these types of things, but I, I found that after a short while, I, I found that I couldn't, I didn't really have the stomach for a lot of it. Does it upset you? Like, does it, have you been really like ever really upset by stuff that people have said about you? No, but there is kind of a cumulative effect. That of kind course. Of, yeah. If, if you're, if you're reading over a bunch of that stuff, it can just ruin your day. Really? For sure. And, and, and even even if it's not something you're dwelling on, it's like reading a reading a book about some horrific event or whatever. After a while, it just it just really wears on you. You know, you, you, the the theme just kind of gets to you, if, if nothing else. And it's not very productive. Uh, so much of it is 
repeating upon itself. And then you begin wondering why you're doing what you're doing. If yeah. People who are supporting you sometimes are sending you the most ignorant messages. That's the worst part. You know, the, uh, the threats and things like that, those are very predictable and easy to dismiss when you're getting uh, strange messages of support that completely miss the point of what you're doing, that can be more distressing still. For sure. While when you, when you found that uh, at least 90% of the messages you get are, are from people you don't want to engage in, you stop wasting your time with that. And, and if you're lucky enough to have other people willing to filter that kind of thing, <laughs> like I do, then it, that's different. But I am, I am interested in, uh, and if not Muslim, just Middle Eastern conspiracy theories and in mm-hmm. all cultures, conspiracy theories, because I'm I feel like I'm very aware of uh, American conspiracy theories. And, uh, and and I like to try to see the common structure of conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't recall like a crazy conspiracy theory culture. In Saudi, like there is one over here, but that's probably because ideas are very policed and you can't really be open about what you're thinking. So, I mean, we had the word prince and royal and things like that bleeped out of cartoons in Saudi because we're not really supposed to think about the monarchy because it's not really an Islamic governance. Something like that. They don't really want you to think about the monarchy, so they remove traces of monarchy-related words. Aha! Uh-huh. Because <laughs> then, obviously, you're not going to realize you're living in a kingdom. Have you seen any Muslim commentary on the Satanic Temple? Or No, I haven't, Christian? actually. That's I've only seen Christian commentary. I mean, I know that Muslims will immediately say anything is Satanic if they feel enough fear or uh, disgust towards it. So maybe not directly about the satanic temple, but yeah, Satan for sure. I mean, Satan's supposed to piss in your hair if you don't wake up from morning prayer or piss in your ear or something like that. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of Satan-related myth stuff, right? Which I always confused me as a kid, right? Because... Right, right. I, I, I believe the uh, the Muslims have more of a, or just as much of a fear of Satan as as Christians. And yeah, and definitely. Jew, Jew, Jews have a lot less of that. Um, so I think I think uh, the Satanic Temple is a lot less shocking to to Jews. Yeah, uh, but I I could see it still being shocking to Muslims. But that said, but I mean, people uh, are still killed for witchcraft and shit in Saudi Arabia, right? Um, right, so. but, but but in the United States, again, of course, uh, the situation is completely different. So we we have had positive American Muslim commentary, and that's just because I feel uh, in the same way we we have received some positive commentary from from moderate Christian groups as well, where they actually look at what we're doing and see we fight for religious freedom. And if you're part of a a genuine religious freedom, that is, I mean, that's... Yeah, not just your religion. Right, right. This idea of the government viewpoint neutrality and that all religious perspectives should be treated the same, real (laughs) religious religious freedom. But um, when you're part of of a minority religion, it's... I think it's easier to see the value in that. And I think for that reason, we've had some positive commentary from American Muslims. Well, that's nice to hear. I mean, 
I wouldn't think that you would get any, but because there's just such a fear of Satan and anything satanic. I mean, they, they will take it quite literally that you're trying to summon Satan and indoctrinate their children or something. So if they can see past that and just see to the legal, uh, from the legal standpoint that you're fighting for a religious freedom for everyone, then that, that's, a, that's a really good thing. Yeah, yeah, we have had that, but uh, but as I said, I'd be really interested to see the. That'd be pretty cool to here. like have you guys invited to like an interfaith dialogue with like Muslims. That'd be amazing, like a like an iftar in Ramadan, like with the Satanists. That'd be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's something to aspire to. I'll see if I can hook that up. Not that I'm very welcome. <laughs> Not that I'll be very welcome, but I'll see if I can get you guys an iftar invite. That would be interesting. I, I would I would do that. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Good to know. Okay, so so last question. A couple of people asked me this. I think they still think that you might be a superstitious guy. So they asked me, like, is he for real? And what is Satanic Temple all about? So if you have a quick little, do you really believe in Satan? Do you really believe in the supernatural? No, we're very open that we don't. And it's funny, we're very clear about that, and we're very upfront with what we do and don't believe. And I feel like the mainstream religions have so perverted people's minds in certain ways that that degree of honesty bespeaks of dishonesty to people. They'll say, well, you're, you admit you're an atheist, as though this was, would be something I would hide. Uh, <laughs> therefore, the, these claims to, uh, to deeply held beliefs or, or a religion are, are mere artifice or they're a dishonest ploy or whatever. And they, they'll say these things apparently without reading our justification or, or understanding what we mean by non-theistic religion or recognizing how counterproductive it is to say that if you are non-superstition, you don't have a religion. Uh, it would be a different story if religions weren't afforded certain exemptions and privileges. But since they are, the idea that you, as a non-believer, can't have a religion is actually uh, diminishing your your civic capabilities and therefore I think it goes entirely against democratic constitutional principles. So when we put forward the definition of religion that, that we think is legitimate, I, I think it's really the, the only way you can define religion in a pluralistic society. Mm -hmm. And the Satan aspect of it isn't arbitrary. It's not something we, we use just as a ploy or just to piss off Christians, as some people uh, take the liberty of asserting when they 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 decide they know exactly what our our motives and values are. You know, for the uh, most part, I feel that probably a lot of the people who self-identify with the Satanic Temple come from backgrounds where they were indoctrinated into Judeo-Christian culture and have seen that as a destructive force and have come to embrace the aesthetic, the symbolism, the rebel narrative of the satanic metaphor. And I feel it's completely legitimate. It does help us uh, maintain a sense of cultural identity. And I think that's really, those are the elements you need to be a religion. I think those are the only elements that can be asked of you to have a religion, to have your deeply held beliefs and to have that sense of cultural identity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great answer. I, I really do enjoy the Satan aspect. Without it, I don't know if you'd be my favorite religion. <laughs> but yeah, it wouldn't be mine. Yeah, uh, you, you don't have to have put supernatural value onto symbolic constructs to appreciate the artistic raw material that Satanism provides. Right. So when you say like it helps you maintain a cultural identity, like is it? Is it a part of your everyday life? Like, is your does your house have a satanic feel to it? Does your I don't know? Do you celebrate holidays and with a satanic touch to them? Well, I definitely uh, appreciate. I've always appreciated Halloween over everything over else. Christmas. But yeah, but but as I've said, there's been the kind of recent push to satanize Christmas, and I I. Uh, so I've I've grown to appreciate the the season more and more as time has gone on, but yeah, I've always gravitated towards the satanic aesthetic. Even when I was a little kid, I I really loved the Universal horror films, and and I feel that's that's common in people who gravitate towards Satanism. Yeah, it's so strange because me too. Like I think I watched Nightmare on Elm Street when I was five, and I don't know why I was allowed to, but I did. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, right. I, 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 but I, I, I think that's something that uh, some of the atheist activists who embrace us and, and feel that this is just simply a great form of activism don't understand that this, the aesthetic, the art that, that comes with it isn't some kind of effort to piss off the other side. It's, it's something we actually appreciate and yeah. prefer. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really. That's really a good way to put it. I don't think I've ever thought of it like that, but I mean, it's true. Like I uh, shop during Halloween for the rest of the year. Like I'll buy like wine glasses with little etched skulls on them or, you know, I'll have like a skeleton apron and things like that. So, so like when it's Halloween, like my friends know that I'm going to be out buying stuff. So they'll like buy me little things. Like my friend just came over the other day and she bought me like this hand soap from Bath and Body Works. And it's like, it's called Vampire Blood and it's got bats on it. <laughs> um, so everybody knows, right? It's probably, it is like a cultural identity that just emanates it. Like if you were to come to my house, you'd see a lot of, a lot of stuff that, the pro like I'm not a Satanist, haven't signed up officially for the at your website, but maybe I will someday. I don't know what prevents me from doing it either. Maybe just this idea of not being attached to a religion is important to me. But yet I'm really drawn to the Satanic Temple, I have to say. Well, um, the uh, the one thing about the Satanic Temple that really distinguishes us from other religious groups is we have none of that insularity. You know, there's there's certainly nothing that discourages the self-identified Satanists from engaging with other people and we're not, we don't proselytize. Yeah. You know, there isn't this notion that, well, if everybody converts to this way of thinking, the world will be a better place and we'll yeah. all be better yeah. off. And, and that's just, that's, that's the destructive force of, of religion, this idea that you can build this worldwide utopia of everybody's in agreement with your with your particular code of ethics. Well, that's or, just tribalism, right? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. But that the tribe must, but that the tribe must be ex- extended into the entire world. That everybody must be assimilated. Yeah. That sounds horrific to me. Yeah, assimilation is a horrible word. Somewhere on the outside. Well, even in terms of immigration, I hear people use it all the time, like assimilation versus integration, and I just flinch when I hear assimilate. And (laughs) I just don't like the word. But yeah, I mean, even when you get a group of non-tribalists together, as you see many atheists proclaim to be non-tribalists, and they start to develop this tribalist way of thinking around being non-tribalist, and then it becomes right. tribal. Right, exactly. And and I've seen that in the in the atheist groups because I go to speak at the secular conferences and atheist conferences and that kind of thing. Where more and more the primary concern seems to be in growing numbers. And and it seems to me that if your primary concern is the numbers of people that's worrying. Then you're not, yeah, but you're also not creating the type of value that would draw people in anyway. You know, but you also have to have a this... better sense of mission than just growing <laughs> numbers to, to, to draw in the nonconformists you're trying exactly. to Exactly. Then they become conformists, right? Like, right. it's a vicious cycle. People used to yeah. say that to me about, like, goths, too. Like, when I was in 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 college, and I guess I, I dressed extremely goth, I suppose. And then there, there was this friend of mine who'd always be like, ha-ha, it's so funny to see all these nonconformists, like, standing there in a line for a Depeche Mode concert, like, with everyone's in black, everyone's got fishnets, everyone's got a black trench coat. And, and he's kind of right, but... The, the nonconformist uniform. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it annoyed me really to hear that at that point because I was like, "No, fuck you!" Like, um, but yeah, I can see that. But anyways, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you as always. Uh, thank you so much for joining me for this special spooky episode. Hopefully, you weren't too offended or triggered by our conversations and. You well, won't I've need counseling. Counselor. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care of yourself and, uh, you know, let me know if there's anything I can ever do to help your organization that's within my limited abilities. I fully support the Satanic Temple. What's your guys' website again? Just in case people want to check it out. The Satanic Temple.com. In. Yeah, I was talking earlier about the therapeutic culture that helped. Uh, provoke the satanic panic um and if people are interested in what we're doing on that front they should check out grayfaction.org all right well take care thank you i hope to talk to you again soon yeah all right bye bye thanks for listening to another episode of polite conversations you can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it making some noise about it or contributing via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help.